Welcome to another TeachingAmericanHistory.org podcast. TAH.org is the leading online resource for documents, resources, and programs related to American history, government, and civics for teachers, students, and citizens. Uh, welcome, everybody, to another TeachingAmericanHistory.org Saturday webinar sponsored by the Ashbrook Center at Ashland University. TAH.org is the leading online resource for the documents-based study of American history, government, and civics for teachers, students, and citizens. I'm Chris Burkett. I teach here at uh, Ashland University, and I'm co-director of the Ashbrook Scholar Program for undergraduate students here. The theme of our webinar series this year is Great American Debates, and in case you happen to be joining us for the first time, our purpose is to pull together some thoughtful scholars uh, and have a conversation uh, about some uh, great debates in, in U.S. history and drawing on some documents that are included in our document database on TAH as well. And uh, we encourage all of you joining us to participate in that conversation by submitting questions in the chat box. Uh, we'll try to get to as many of those as possible, and I encourage our uh, scholars joining us today as well. If you see a question come up in the chat box, uh, feel free to, and, and you want to tackle it, please feel free to go go right for it. Uh, you don't have to wait for me to bring it up. But uh, if you do submit a question, please submit it in the chat box, and make sure that you send it to all participants, uh, not just me privately. So um, send it to everybody so we can all, all take a look at the question. So uh, today's debate is Frederick Douglass versus William Lloyd Garrison, and we're very honored to have uh, two very thoughtful gentlemen with us today, Peter Myers of the University of Wisconsin-Eau Claire and Lucas Morrell of Washington and Lee University. Thanks to both of you for joining us this morning. Glad to be here. My pleasure. Really, really appreciate it. So, um, so I, the title of our debate today is um, Frederick Douglass versus William Lloyd Garrison. So since it's versus, obviously there's a disagreement there somehow, right? So, um, and I'm sure we'll get into what the disagreement is. Um, but I thought maybe if you don't mind, one or both of you could talk a little bit about the fact that they were friends. My understanding is they were friends and fellow abolitionists. And maybe we can start by talking about what they agreed on before we get into the details of what they what they disagreed on. Would either of you care to talk just a little bit about how they came to know each other, uh, how they were associated with each other as abolitionists, and then we can start to see where and why they, they started to disagree. Lucas, you want to take that or you want me to? Uh Okay, tell you what, I'll start and then Pete correct me. <laughs> we'll wind up saying we'll wind up saying more or less the same things same anyway. Thing. I'm expecting. Or, yeah. uh, but given that you've actually written a book on the subject, and I only pretend to know a little bit about Douglas because I only write articles, uh, I'll start and Pete <laughs> the spaces and, and correct my uh, correct my problems. Uh, Douglas came under the tutelage of William Lloyd Garrison after hearing a speech of Garrison's or reading an editorial, I forget which, and essentially was trained to be an abolitionist speaker the way Garrison was. Uh, early on, um, of course, I should state the obvious, uh, we should begin with the fact that Frederick Douglass is an escaped slave, so he is an outlaw, according to uh, uh, 
the, the slave law of uh, Maryland, from which he escaped. And according to the Fugitive Slave Act of the United States at the time, dated back all the way to 1793, uh, he did not live freely with the protection of the law of any state or federal government. And so uh, going on the abolitionist uh, speaking tour with Garrison and speaking about the horrible uh, horribleness of slavery and in some detail, but not perfect detail, uh, explaining how he escaped, he was really risking his life by being open to apprehension. And uh, he learned from Garrison uh, that the key way to get rid of slavery was not through force, but through words. Um, this was the known as moral suasion. In other words, that the way you get abolition, and we're both, of course, in favor of abolition. Here, Douglas was, of course, pra uh, preaching what he had already practiced. Uh, the way you get abolition ultimately is by persuading the man-stealers, the slaveholders, to be convicted of the sin, the crime of slavery, and then to stop stealing, uh, to uh, manumit their slaves. And this was known as moral suasion. In other words, the use of words to persuade, exhort, excoriate, and even condemn uh, not only the institution of slavery, but those who practiced it. Douglas did this so well, unfortunately, that when his master found out about um, him, uh, he tried to uh, get him back. So Douglas had to flee the country for a few years. Uh, he fled to the United Kingdom, where he gave speeches there. And he was only uh, allowed, uh, he only chose to return after his uh, freedom was purchased for him by friends uh, abroad as well as at home, including uh, a widow's mite from William Lloyd Garrison, who did so as a part, I can understand, grudgingly. He, it's not that he didn't want Douglas to be free, but he didn't like the fact that to get him free, he had to be turned into an article of merchandise. Douglas himself writes uh, that he would not contribute one penny to what God had gave him already, but he did not begrudge those who helped him legally become a free man. And so, uh, uh, as I say, until about 4950, Douglas preaches essentially the same line, essentially the same line as William Lloyd Garrison, that the only legitimate way to achieve freedom from slavery is through peaceful means. You cannot coerce or compel righteousness. Uh, Garrison had a pretty high bar, which Douglas, for the most part, was trying to meet as well in terms of how that righteousness was to be accomplished. In other words, it was not to be accomplished with some sanction. You know, do this or you get punished or fined. Uh, righteousness comes from inside, not from outside. And as I said, that's a, a pretty high bar uh, uh, to try to accomplish something that uh, ultimately we'll see. Uh, Douglas decides you need to do by way of law and the Constitution. So <coughs> how's that for a start? And Pete, I'll let you fill in some of the, the things I left out. That's a, that's a really good start. Um, yeah, a couple of things I would add. Um, I would add a thing or two on the backstory about uh, Douglas and Garrison, and then uh, uh, and then expand a bit on what they agreed on. And then um, and there's something in that that's kind of interesting that maybe has uh, has bigger um, 
or more extended significance. But but let me let me get to the backstory first. The uh, Douglas tells about this in his autobiographies that he um, he initially heard about abolitionists through whisperings and mutterings of uh, of members of the slaveholding class including uh, his own his own master uh, and he kind of strained to pick up what they were talking about but he got enough of it to figure out that the that abolitionism was something that they feared and loathed and that made it appealing to him so he's already got kind of a fascination with these abolitionists uh, even before he he escapes. So now let's go to the period immediately after he escapes. He's working, um, you know, he winds up in Bedford, Massachusetts, and uh, he works as a day laborer pretty much happily. You know, he's very happy to be paid for his own labor. He's uh, he's supporting a family. This is this is 1838 to 1841. But all the while, he's also attending abolition meetings and um, actually local ones and actually occasionally speaking on them, uh, at them. And he's he's reading The Liberator, uh, which he described as his nourishment at at that time. And so... His involvement with the abolitionists leads him to attend this convention in Nantucket. I think it was a New England anti... Well, no, it would have been a yeah, either New England or Massachusetts anti-slavery society convention in, in uh, probably New England in Nantucket. Uh, this is in 1841. And uh, so he's just in the audience and he's listening to speakers. And someone recognizes him and has heard him in one of his, uh, one of his church uh, abolition oratories probably and invites him to speak at that, at that convention. And he describes it as a very fearful thing, that he's full of trepidation, speaking to this audience. I think maybe this is the first time in his life he's spoken to an audience of, of white people. Um, and, uh, uh, and so he gives this uh, impromptu speech about, about more or less impromptu about slavery. Garrison's in the audience, and Garrison is... Uh, uh, is just amazed, enthralled by what Douglas has to say, and pretty much immediately invites him to become, you know, to join the the, the, the group of of Garrisonian uh, itinerant lecturers about slavery. And uh, and Douglas is a little hesitant immediately, but he agrees to do that, and that's what that's what launches his career. So. Let's let's say something bigger about his initial sympathy for Garrison. It isn't simply that uh, that Garrison was anti-slavery, though that's obviously the main the main part of it. Um, <clears throat> Garrison was, in his way, <laughs> uh, one cautions oneself not to say too much of this in uh, in the Trump era, but. Um, Garrison was, a, you know, had a kind of anti-American spirit. I mean, Garrison had an antinomian, almost anti-political spirit as well, and so that's not too terribly surprising. But but Douglas found that initially appealing. Um, there's a famous editorial in which uh, this is a little bit later in the 1840s, in which Douglas asks 
you know, what what country do I have? What country have I? Are his are his words? And in a in a letter to Garrison, I think this was written uh, in the time that Lucas mentioned when he was in the British Isles. Um, he says uh, he says to Garrison, "I have no patriotism. I've, my patriotism's been whipped out of me." And uh, and that's how he answered the question, "What country have I?" He says, "I have I have no country. America is not my country." And uh, and so you know, which is understandable. I mean, first of all, Douglas is a young man. He's an angry young man. Uh, he's full of a sense of the injustice of the country toward people like him. And uh, and so he's sympathetic to Garrison's. There's a kind of natural inclination to be sympathetic to the disunion strategy, the anti-constitution strategy. It's more than a strategy, principle, really, that, uh, that, that Garrison held. And so I think that's a big thing to think of and always to keep in mind about Douglas. That Douglas became, in a way, a, a great American patriot, a patriot. And, and that, that patriotism was not natural to him. You know that was that was earned. That was that was hard earned by by reflection on the on the on the character of the country, at least in prospect. One one last thing in summary. You know, Chris, you asked what they agree on. Um, what the, one of the distinctive things about Garrisonian abolitionism, as compared with the kind of anti-slavery sentiment that prevailed during the founding era and the first uh, maybe few decades of uh, America's national life was that the Garrisonians insisted on immediate abolition, that it was not to be gradual, it was not to be compensated. Um, it, it had to be immediately affected because every moment of slavery is a monstrous injustice. So they agreed about that. They agreed, as Lucas said, about the moral suasion, though I don't think Douglas was ever fully convinced that this should be the exclusive method. Um, but there's again a story in his autobiography about that. The first book he ever read besides the Bible was a collection, an oratory collection called The Columbian Orator. And his favorite part of that book was a dialogue between a master and a slave, a fictitious dialogue between a master and a slave. You know, it's kind of a simple little story in which the, the person who's enslaved essentially talks his master out of enslaving him. Uh, and, uh, and Douglas found, who was obviously gifted with language, uh, found something very appealing in that. So the moral suasion idea is appealing to him in that way. And finally, they originally agreed, though this is one of the big points of, uh, of the break, they originally agreed on the pro-slavery character of the Constitution, mainly because Garrison was a kind of mentor to you know, Frederick Douglass, you got to consider through this period in the 1840s, Frederick Douglass has never had any formal education. He's, he's a very young man, still in his, in his, uh, in his 20s, in most of that decade. Uh, and, uh, and so he was impressionable. And Garrison was almost a kind of father figure for a while, which made it all the more, all the more difficult uh, when they, um, I mean, emotionally difficult for both of them when they, uh, when they parted ways. All right, that's enough out of me for now. Well, there's so much good stuff in, in both of your, your introductory remarks here. For, uh, first of all, just circling back a little bit, Lucas, I had no idea that, uh, that Garrison actually contributed anything toward Douglas's freedom. That had, from a man of such high principle, that had to have been one of the toughest things he'd ever done. Yeah, and, uh, Pete, you could check me on this, but I, I believe Garrison writes of this very briefly, and you could, he, he, 
he confesses this, as I say, grudgingly. He, ha he, he recognizes that the mere fact that he contributes, as I put it, his widow's might, uh, is, uh, I mean, uh, it, it's, he, re he recognizes that he, by purchasing his freedom, he's actually enabling the system by which human beings yeah. are commodified. Of course, it's for the sake of freedom, not for the enslavement of a person. But he does it. I mean, I'm sure he repented right after he did it, uh, right. whatever his sense of his maker uh, was. Pete, can you add anything to that? Well, n not on the particular point. I mean, but I mean, I, I I agree with all of that. And it seems to me. I mean, a couple of further points. It, it seems to me that um, that that's that's characteristic of Garrison. Sure. You know, that Garrison was. Um, Garrison insisted on being so inflexibly principled about about these kinds of issues that it um, it it got him into difficulties in in circumstances in which some prudential judgment was required, and uh, and and the Douglas liberation was certainly one of those. Right? I mean, any anybody's liberation would be one of those. You're dealing, okay? You've got a principle that says if I pay somebody. For uh, you know, for in exchange for liberation, then it's like paying a robber, you know, to stop being a robber. And and at the level of principle, that's of course quite right. Uh, that Douglas or Garrison thought that if you do this, you're implicitly conveying a certain recognition of the character of slaves as property. Mm -hmm. And there's no such thing as human property except in the self-ownership sense. And right. so you can't do that. But on the other hand. If you got an opportunity to liberate a flesh and blood human being, you know, um, do you not take uh, all the measures you can to do that? And uh, and and I think the other point is kind of building, generalizing upon that. Garrison tended to equivocate on certain kinds of points, really just for this reason, when his principles butted up against what in some level he recognized as a more prudential judgment, he tended to get more equivocal. The thing I have in mind is, um, for instance, what he says about Nat Turner, you know, the Garrison was, and John Brown later on, Garrison was um, a principled advocate of moral suasion, that he wanted this done by peaceful means. He wanted to convert people to appeal to their heart and absolutely rejected violence as a means of including the force of law yes. as a means of as a means of liberating slaves. Um, okay, now that's a principled position. You know, I, I sometimes I say to my class, was was Garrison a kind of 19th century version of Martin Luther King Jr. in that respect, nonviolent direct action? You know, um, but on the other hand, when he actually had to comment on acts of forceful rebellion, he tends to equivocate. He doesn't really criticize Nat Turner for doing what he does. He says, well, I can't support violence in principle, but what Nat Turner does is understandable and inevitable given the violence of slavery. And so, you know, th there's a certain equivocation in Garrison, I think, for these, for these reasons. That's very interesting. So <clears throat> we have a piece, I think, from Douglas. I'm sorry, yeah, from Douglas. Uh, uh, that I think is included in the uh, documents and debates volume, if I remember correctly, uh, Frederick Douglass uh, justifying John Brown. Is that, a, is that a point of divergence between them as well? 
I'm skipping well, ahead a little bit. Maybe we don't want to go there yet. But. I'll say something brief about that. Lucas can add. Um, I it. At a, at a certain level, maybe. I, I, my, my sense is that Douglas had much more to say about John Brown than did Garrison. Douglas had a more personal involvement with John Brown mm-hmm. than, did, than did Garrison. Garrison met him. Garrison, Garrison knew him some. But there's never a sense between Garrison and John Brown that they're going to work together. John Brown really wanted Frederick Douglas to work together with yeah. him. And Douglas, Douglas was tempted. Uh, Douglas considered it. Um, but he thought that, I mean, Don, John Brown had two different plans, and one of them I think Douglas was pretty well on board with, the more moderate one, you know, the, the, the plan to, to take Harper's Ferry, uh, you know, and, and spread a slave rebellion, Douglas thought was, was something close to madness, and so he didn't, he didn't sign on to that. But he did think that, Jug, that, that John Brown was a glorious martyr, for the anti-slavery cause. He, he, he regarded John Brown as a kind of a vanguard, really a sort of a vanguard um, force in, the, in what became the Union Army. And, uh, and he continued to extol John Brown, praise him to the skies for decades after, after the Civil War was over. So yeah, I mean, uh, he compares John Brown. He gives a speech uh, at the anniversary of Harper's Ferry, gives a speech at Harper's Ferry, uh, and, uh, and uh, he compares John Brown to Jesus. I mean, he's, he, he really, he really praises, I mean, when I say he praises him to the skies, I should say he praises him to the heavens. I mean, uh, I mean, uh, you know, he, he, he never said, really, never said much of anything bad about John Brown. Wow. Wow. He, um, is that the same speech where he says, I could live for the slave, but John Brown could die for the slave? I believe so. Somewhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I, because that's what was the great virtue of John Brown for him. The John Brown, you know, yeah. Douglas said, look, I'm a, I'm a black man advocating for black people, you know, so I got a certain self-interest as well as a principle in this. John Brown is a white man, yep. you know, who is willing to give his life for people who are not like him, you know, who don't identify with him. And that's, that's very special. That, yeah. that was Douglas's view of it. Let me quickly add, uh, to try to make it uh, a little more balanced here, at least in terms of Garrison's uh, foot in the water here. Uh, there is a, a, a piece that Garrison writes, and it may be on the Ashbrook website, and if it's not, I'm sure they could put one up pretty quickly. Uh, John Brown and the Principle of Non-Resistance. This is a speech or editorial that, that Brown writes in December of 1859, yeah. And he says emphatically, on the one hand, he's a non-resistant. In other words, he would never, of course, aid or abet John Brown. Nevertheless, he likes the result. <laughs> so he says, I'm a non-resistant. I've labored unremittingly to effect, uh, with an E, the peaceful abolition of slavery. Yet I am prepared to say success to every slave insurrection at the South, South and in every slave country. He mm-hmm. says, whenever commenced, I cannot but wish success to all slave insurrections. So on the one hand, he says, oh, I can't, I can't lift a finger, and nor would I encourage anyone to actually use force to accomplish this righteous end. Nevertheless, if the ball gets rolling in that, in that regard, I'm not going to get in the way, and in fact, I'm going to wish it Godspeed. So uh, he wants to remain pure in his principles and at least give moral encouragement to the objective, if not to the means towards that objective. So I think you're right, Pete. It's an equivocal way of saying, it's kind of like crossing your fingers behind your back 
and saying, no, 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 not even the slaves should use force to free himself, but boy, I wish him well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'm looking at that speech as I'm, uh, as I'm listening to you. I'll, I'll add a further quotation. It says, says Garrison, give me as a non-resistant, we should maybe explain that term in a second, but sure. give me as a non-resistant Bunker Hill and Lexington and Concord. Rather than the cowardice and servility of a southern slave plantation, he goes on, we have been warmly sympathizing with John Brown all the way through from the time of his arrest till now. Now he no longer needs our sympathy, for he is beyond suffering and wears the victor's crown. You know, so, so in a way, you know, Dick Harrison says kind of what Douglas is going to say, that he's a, John Brown is a sort of, in, in an odd kind of way, he's a sort of a Jesus figure. Um, that's interesting. That, I'm sorry. Go you, ahead. No, you go ahead, Chris. No, I was just going to say it's uh, there's this interesting relationship. It seems like Garrison is really concerned with ends and means, right? And he famously says in in one of the speeches that we that we recommended today, uh, part of his condemnation of the founding and the and the compromises in the Constitution is that uh, though the end they thought the end uh, may have been good, that of establishing a union. Uh, the, the, that end doesn't justify means. In the example of paying uh, or contributing to uh, uh, Douglas's freedom, the end may have been good, but he did. He had a you know the, the means of contributing, and for the reasons you, you mentioned, uh, seemed to be uh, unjust to him as well. And in this particular, in this case with John Brown, though the end may have been good, he had some uh, sort of qualms with with the means as well. So he really wants to be just as much as possible or justified as much as possible in both ends and means, which, again, sets a pretty high moral standard, as you both have said already. Um, my, so my question from this is, is, was this a result of Garrison's religious background? I don't know much about Garrison's religious views. Yeah, in, in part. I'll say something brief, and then I'll let Pete give us the more capacious uh, response. <laughs> <laughs> You're setting me up for a fall here. Yeah, that's precisely what I'm doing. Christianity is, is, shall we say, not quite conventional or orthodox, but I'll begin with an easy one. Um, his, his pacifism, I think, can, can legitimately be expressed as Christian pacifism. At least he understood it that way. Um, he did not believe, to borrow from the Gospels, he did not believe that good fruit can come from an evil tree. And so in that sense, uh, Chris, to your point about means and ends, um, he did not think that you could achieve a truly righteous result from means that were at all, and I mean at all, tainted. And that was the great rub or the great obstacle uh, for him. I think uh, it was Diana Schott who brought up uh, a quote, and I'm not sure where it's from, but she mentioned that among the pacifists, the, one of the slogans was, we would not... Uh, strike Satan even to kill him. <laughs> uh, imagine if you have, I mean, this is like the ring and throwing it in order to try to bounce around from the Bible to Tolkien, but uh, even if you had the opportunity to get rid of the originator of evil, the pacifist claimed, no, we could not even use force to do that. So that's putting a very fine point on it, but that's essentially the principle that drove Garrison. Now, I'll let Pete describe what, he, how, what was his reading of the Bible on these things, and how did he apply it to uh, uh, abolitionism uh, as he understood it? Yeah, I can't. I can't improve on that. I mean, uh, I mean, uh, if we if 
Lucas, Lucas knows more about the, uh, the, the religious background and significance of these things than, than I do. The, the non-resistance idea was, was uh, based on a certain reading of the Bible, you know, resist ye, not, uh, not evil. Yeah. Um, in a way, really, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's an interpretation of the, of the turn the other cheek doctrine. Um, and Garrison typically took it in a kind of inflexibly principled way, at least in his, at least in his rhetoric. What, why Garrison so insisted on uh, quote-unquote life according to principle, I, that's, that's a little harder to know. Um, it, it just seemed to be part of his temper, part of his, uh, his, his intellectual makeup. But, but whatever the origin of it, that was, that was the doctrine. That, and it was, well, yeah, I was going to read something, but I'll, I'll finish that thought in the, at, at first. So the idea was that, I think, I think this ultimately is the, is, is, the, is the moral thought that's animating Garrison, that slavery will be done and gone. You know, it will be well and truly um, uh, abolished when it is abolished in the hearts of all of the people supportive of it. Mm -hmm. And that means they have to be converted. Um, and so there's almost in a way a kind of a, a, kind of a Lockean point here from, uh, from Locke's letter concerning toleration. I'm not saying that's a direct influence, but the idea being that or Augustinian, you could say the same thing. Early, early Augustine, that uh, that um, you can't you can't beat people into conversion. You know, you can't force them to believe something that they don't actually believe. At some level, there has to be a moral suasion in order, really, finally, to take care of this problem. And so, Garrison simply renounces all force, and the non-resistant position you know, reasoning out the logic of it means a kind of, he didn't like the term, but it means a kind of anarchism. Um, because, because you're, you're resisting people to be the, you're resisting the idea that governments are necessary um, to make people behave themselves by the force of law. You know, they have to be governed by their own conscience. Um, and, uh, and that's what he wants the outcome to be with regard to the slaveholders also. He didn't like the term anarchism because he insisted that he was a proponent of the government of God, uh, that he, you know, that it's not simply human self-government, you know, in, in a kind of radical libertarian way. Um, so fair enough, but he, but he does reject human government as a non-resistant. And so that's a bigger, that, that's a kind of a bigger and more expansive reason as to why he, uh, uh, why he rejects political means for abolition. Uh, I mean, he, he sort of, it took him a little while to come to that conclusion. I mean, you can find things that Garrison said early on uh, that suggest, that support, that support political action against abolition. But when he really, when he really reasons out, uh, in his view, the implications of this non-resistance position, he becomes uh, he becomes really, really thoroughly anti-political, and that was the that was the basis for the disunion position, just as much as his uh, as his rejection of the Constitution was. Very, yeah, I'll just say, I'll just direct our, our participants to the <laughs> the speech Declaration of Sentiments adopted by the Peace Convention. Uh, focus on yeah. the word peace. By that he means pacifism, 
And in that, uh, I'm not going to refer to it uh, specifically, but in that, you'll see his arguments against compulsion. You can't make people do uh, become righteous, as it were. This doesn't come as a result of a sanction or a threatened uh, punishment. Uh, it really is a conversion. And you really get a globalist, if you will, perspective there. That he, they, and it, that's even not true because he doesn't. Uh, as much as he is, he, he thinks all human beings are made in the image of God and therefore uh, deserve uh, to be free uh, and to live. He he proclaims emphatically that that he pledges, they pledge no allegiance to any human government. That's mm-hmm. where Pete is talking about. Well. Does that mean no rule, i.e., does that mean anarche, without rule, without laws? Uh, technically, yes, but that means these are people who are so thoroughly converted, as Pete put it, uh, they don't need to be told by other human beings what to do. God, as they submit to his will, will be their ruler. And so there's a millenarian aspect to Garrison as well. They really are looking forward to the second coming of Christ in that respect, the only true Lord, the only true ruler uh, of human beings, because as converts, they would be Lord, uh, he would be Lord of their hearts, right? He would have uh, so captured their will, uh, if you will, they don't need human laws to tell them uh, what's right from what's wrong. That's very interesting. And we have, we have a number of uh, questions that have come Oh, yes, yeah. fire away. So, so um, a quick one from John, and then I'd like to circle back to a question from Sam. Uh, John, on this point that you, I think you were just raising, Lucas, John asks um, if there's a relationship between Garrison's rhetoric, or maybe we can say his pacifism and the things you were just talking about, with the Second Great Awakening. This seems to be seem to be yeah. some parallels in the way. Um, I couldn't tell you, uh, you know, which came first. <laughs> Was it the <laughs> Awakening or Garrison? I'm not as good a historian, I suppose, as I should be on this question to know if he was part of that, uh, that uh, social uh, movement, uh, but it's certainly, he's certainly explicit, at, at least in that uh, one statement, uh, with regards to um, this, this very palpable sense that the social reform movements of the day, not just abolition, but uh, temperance, uh, you know, penal reform, uh, a number of the things that were also happening in, in England, like we kind of piggyback on these social movements that were becoming political movements, even though, of course, Garrison doesn't want it to be a political movement. Uh, I don't think it's a coincidence that those things are happening at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe there was some, it'd be an interesting question to pursue, perhaps. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's exactly what I was going to say. I think it, it isn't, it cannot be accidental that, uh, that, that the, at the same time the Second Great Awakening arises, you get uh, you know, the temperance movements, uh, women's rights movements, socialism and communism uh, yeah. in, uh, you know, in kind of localized ways and also, and also abolition. And by the way, yeah, I don't, I don't want to steer this in a different direction. Just a little, just a, a small tangent about that was that Douglas, Frederick Douglass, um, uh, encountered here and there the idea that... Uh, that there was a uh, an intricate connection between abolition and socialism. That uh, and uh, and Douglas thought that was a great confusion and a terrible idea to link the two. That that in other words, the the attack on the property of slavery and other human beings entailed somehow an attack on all property. Um, that's uh, it's sort of a version of what Garrison Garrison seems to think the attack on. Uh, on the U.S. government, as currently constituted, is really part of a broad attack on all human government. And, 
so there's a kind of utopianism that Douglas yeah. that Douglas is uncomfortable with. Yep, good distinction. Yeah, that's very interesting. Um, Sam uh, points out uh, almost all pacifists, advocates of nonviolent resistance, do claim that the violence of the violence of violent resistance against oppression is a lesser violence than the violence enforcing oppression. And he cites Gandhi. And so I'm just wondering, does does Garrison's we're circling back a little bit, but does, since we talked about his pacifism, does Garrison's pacifism agree with or deviate from that general sort of tradition of, of, of pacifism understood as nonviolent resistance? Well, I was just going to say something briefly. I, re I read that comment, and I think that's a fair point, um, that there, there certainly are these judgments that there's a difference. Garrison has certainly a sympathy for Nat Turner that he does not have, um, say, for the likes of Edward Covey, you know. But, but, um, but on the other hand, I'd, I'd, I'd stick with my word of equivocation. I think there is a certain, I mean, to say that, it's a lesser violence is not the same thing as saying Godspeed to those who are, uh, who are taking up arms against, uh, against slavery. I think that that is a kind of equivocation uh, when, when he takes this principled position of, uh, of nonviolence. Um, it's sort of similar to, although MLK doesn't go quite that far. I mean, what, what Martin Luther King Jr. will say about the rioters, about those who, uh, um, uh, you know who are who are engaging in, uh, in in racial rioting for some of them at least for protest reasons in the 1950s. You know King deplores the method. He thinks it's going to have bad consequences, but he but he's but there's a sense in which he thinks it's also justified. Great. Um, and then maybe one other quick question. Uh, and then I'd like to we should turn to the, the disagreements between them and how those develop and what those disagreements actually are. But uh, Jay asked about um, uh, the Coloniz colonization, the colonization yeah. abolitionists. What were uh, Garrison and Douglas's views on that? And did they agree on that? You want to take that one, Lucas? Um, I'm trying to find site chapter and verse here, but uh, so just take this one off the top of my head. Um, Garrison uh, famously, perhaps most famously declares in his first editorial, uh, he, he not only recant ever being a gradualist with regards to abolition, I don't remember if he brings up colonization, but I believe he had once favored colonization, but I want, I, I, I please quickly uh, refute that if you know for a fact that that is not true, but I have. No, that's, that's, that's correct. That's so true. This is very early on, and so right. uh, part of his mission to uh, preach the true gospel of abolitionism uh, Garrison had to begin with repenting of public sin with regards to what he had tried to persuade other people to believe. Uh, not only that slavery wasn't so bad that you couldn't do it in a more moderate, gradual way over time, but he was, like many abolitionists were, uh, uh, in favor of colonization as, as, as a, the most um, likely plan B on the emancipation front. You go back uh, to the founding period with guys as famous as Thomas Jefferson uh, saying that uh, we're entirely in favor of emancipation, but we cannot, we do not see a peaceful coexistence of blacks and whites, and therefore the best thing to do is to, to twin emancipation with what he called expatriation, what we're calling colonization. In other words, we'll free them 
but they must leave. Um, they, we cannot have uh, free blacks, uh, we don't believe that free blacks would coexist peacefully with free whites, and therefore, for the sake of both, uh, the blacks would need to, to go elsewhere. And so that was a, an opinion that Garrison once held, I can't cite chapter and verse on it, but he uh, quickly disabuses uh, anyone of that notion and that support uh, in his first editorial, at least insofar as uh, gradualism, to be sure. Um, I, but I can't cite the speech with regards to colonization right now. Yeah. And that seems like a position that um, uh, uh, Douglas pretty consistently opposed. Famously. Oh, yeah, emphatically. Pete, that's a good read. That's a softball, Pete. You can. That <laughs> yeah, that, that, that's a hanging curve. Yeah. Um, um, <laughs> Garrison and Douglas, in the maturity of Garrison's thinking, which comes pretty quickly, uh, as Lucas says. I mean, by the time, by the time he even uh, he even launches the Liberator, he's become convinced of the anti-colonization position. Yes. So, so he's really, you know, he's born in 1805. So he's very young, uh, early 20s when he's when he's open to the idea of colonization. Douglas hated it all along, and and the. The the reasons, at least the one reason, main reason is is really simply this that um, well I guess I can't say it simply, but the the American Colonization Society is a kind of a which was the society you know um, organized by by actually heavyweight politicians at the at the national level. Who are anti-slavery, but they're they're moderates and gradualists. They're anti-slavery in the way that that most anti-slavery people, members of the founding, especially the the Southerners and the Republicans, as opposed to the Federalists, were. Um, so the idea was that again, that emancipation needs to be gradual, needs to be compensated, and it needs to be followed by colonization, um, and. Really, standing above all of those ideas is the idea that, you know, for God's sakes, we want it to be peaceful, so it has to be voluntary. You know, the slaveholders have to agree to do this. Well, the slaveholders are not going to agree to just surrender um, a, a, a very large portion of their of their wealth without compensation, um, and. The, not only the slaveholders, but the whole of, the, of white society, especially but not exclusively in the South, really across the whole country, um, is uneasy with, uneasy is a very polite word, with the idea of integration. Douglas uh, refers in a later speech, 1865 speech, he refers to this question he says, that has bedeviled the anti-slavery movement from the beginning. And the question is, quote unquote, what shall we do with the Negro post-emancipation? Um, he hated that question because he understood that that question proceeded from the thought that integration or civil and political equality between whites and blacks living side by side under the same law in the same society is simply not possible either not possible or not desirable for uh, the majority of whites, North and South. And so to get back to the, the motives for the colonization society, the idea was you've got to find a way to make anti-slavery palatable to people, mm -hmm. you know, people in positions of power, so that you can imagine legislators 
you know, who are elected by people uneasy with the influx of a free black population into their midst are actually going to vote for this. Uh, and so, you know, that's the, in a sense, that's the case for it. Um, but the case against it is that, or at least a big part of it is, that if you say this, that, that emancipation becomes possible, abolition becomes possible, only when you have the promise of colonization um, as the aftermath of it. And you add to this the experiential premise that colonization is not going to happen. I mean, not mass colonization. The American Colonization Society succeeded in founding what's now the country of Liberia, and it succeeded in sending uh, a few thousand people over the course of a few decades to Liberia. Um, but that's a few thousand people out of, you know, by the mid-19th century, millions of people who are enslaved. Um, Garrison's colleague, Benjamin Lundy, said at one point that, you know, colonization is like trying to bail out the ocean with a thimble. It's, it's not going to happen. And so if you put those two things together, emancipation can only happen if you've got colonization. And you can't have colonization then the colonization argument becomes an argument for continuing slavery. Uh, and that's, well, that's one way of expressing what both Garrison and Douglas hated about it. Um, you know, another way of, uh, of expressing what Douglas hated about it is the idea that, um, that a, a free black person is just anathema to, uh, uh, especially to slaveholding society. You know, so the, the support for colonization was kind of equivocal. You would say, and I'm using that word a lot, I'm sorry, but uh, um, in the North, you could say this is a means to end slavery. In the South, you could say this is a means to rid yourself of a troublesome population of free blacks. Uh, and Douglas hated that, uh, that, that implication of it also. Wow. I, I found the site, I'll just say this real quickly. Um, uh, I'm glad Pete brought up the American Colonization Society because Garrison actually gave a speech to them. But look at how far back it is, 1829, July 4th, mm -hmm. 1829. Mm -hmm. um, he gives this speech and just a few quick points that he was arguing in this speech. He says, I call upon our citizens to assist in establishing auxiliary colonization societies in every state, county, and town. Um, he's, he wants Congress at this point in time uh, to colonize, quote, the colored population of the state, uh, et cetera. So there was a time in the deep <laughs> uh, past of, of Garrison where he actually was a supporter of colonization. But again, by the time of his uh, first editorial for when he becomes really uh, uh, the, the beginning of, of the popularity of probably the most well-known abolitionist in the country, uh, in, when he publishes The Liberator, he has repented of that sin and the sin of gradualism. So that's July 4th, 1829, addressed to the American Colonization Society. It's fascinating. So this is really interesting. So then uh, given Douglas's consistent opposition to colonization for the reasons that, that, um, that he was just talking about, it, it recalls a statement, or I think Lucas, you pointed this out earlier, that um, that there was a sort of moment, a turning point for Douglas with regard to what I think you referred to earlier as his patriotism. That is, you know, as Douglas said famously, "I have no country, 
Mm-hmm. Um, you might think that if that was true, then Douglas might have been inclined toward colonization or leaving this country. But as you pointed out, there's a turning point for him, right, where he comes around and starts, at least in his rhetoric, um, thinking out loud about uh, the, the possibility in the future after emancipation of, of black Americans and white Americans living together peacefully. And in his rhetoric, he talks about, well, there, again, there's a more, just losing, using this term a little bit loosely, there's, a, there's a, a deeper kind of patriotism that reveals itself. Despite the flaws of his country, um, his patriotism seems to reveal itself in a hope, a hope of sorts for his country in the future. Yeah. So well, the, the great pivot, of course, is his change of mind with regards to the nature of the Constitution. As Pete hinted yeah, earlier, right. uh, he shifts from that 1848 or 48, 48, 47, 48 speech, uh, the right to criticize American institutions, where he says, what country have I? Um, and um, I have no country. This country doesn't recognize me, et cetera. I have patriotism if I don't have a country. Uh, but by the time 1852 rolls around, um, he, and, and by the way, you know, 1852 is after the second Fugitive Slave Act is passed, mm-hmm. after mm-hmm. the Fugitive Slave Act is revised, to be, to, where they put more teeth into that uh, legal federal bite in terms of the return of fugitive slaves to their putative owners. Douglas, it, it, at that point in time, decides, you know what? The Constitution is pro-liberty. It is not pro-slavery. And there, that is the biggest, I, mean, I don't know, at least politically, the biggest break that he makes with Garrison, uh, because Garrison uh, does not believe that. He believes, as he famously put it, it's a covenant with death and an agreement with hell. Uh, You always knew where you stood with Garrison. (laughs) 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 That right out there. Uh, Douglas thinks that that the Constitution is the premier lever by which slavery will be destroyed. If uh, If we allow the Constitution to fall apart. In other words, if we let, as Garrison wanted, our erring sisters go, uh, Douglas says that that make it easier or harder for us to, to emancipate slaves. Does that absolve us of responsibility? Absolutely not. And the, and the best place to look for this, at least on this technical question of the Constitution as a lever for slavery or for emancipation, is the speech on the Dred Scott decision in 1857. Right. And I'm just going to make one point and then uh, let, let Pete take over, as I am wont to do. Um, Douglas says, I know of no soil better adapted to the growth of reform than American soil for the development of right ideas of liberty and humanity. So here is someone who recognizes the problems of American slavery, right? It's transpiring and has certain um, strong safeguards and protections within the American Union. And yet he says, uh, the best solution for this problem, the best remedy is to be found within, not from without. And that is a direct, that is a frontal assault on Garrison's uh, opinion about the Constitution. So over to you, Pete. Okay. Yeah, there's a lot to say about this. Chris, that's, yeah. a, really good, that's a really good question. That's a, that's a very interesting and very important question. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start just by coming back to your question. Um, if if later 1840s, Douglas says, well, I have no country. I mean, and he says that for reasons that are built upon a logic. You know, I'm outside the law. I have as, you know, I've been until very recently a fugitive. And most of the people who are like me, who look like me, 
you know, have no legal protection. Well, if you don't have any legal protection, it's a little hard to have a, a firm sense of allegiance to the to the country that you're that you're in. And so, you're right. It, it would seem like a natural um, inference from that would be support for colonization. Here, let me introduce a distinction. Um, the colonization movement is, I mean, you know, back to Douglas's hatred of it for just a second. The colonization movement is a movement of, uh, is a movement created by white men for, you know, the object of which is to get rid of free black people in the U.S. So you know, when you put it in those terms, it's easy to see why Douglas hated that. But let's distinguish colonization from emigration um, because there was an emigrationist movement uh, that never commanded the allegiance of anywhere near a majority of blacks, but it did have support in the black community uh, in the uh, later 1840s and especially after the, I mean, really much more support after uh, the fugitive slave law was passed in, in 1850. Um, here, an honorable mention goes to uh, a one-time Douglas's one-time colleague, Martin Delaney, um, who wrote a book in 1852, same year Douglas gives his most, uh, his maybe his most important speech. Delaney writes this book advocating that, uh, uh, that that blacks should emigrate. You know that things are hopeless for us here. We're outside the protections of law. Uh, white Americans glorify their own uh, revolutionary fathers, but their ancestors were emigrants and they did something glorious. We can do, we can do, and we should do the same thing. So Delaney is making this argument. Delaney was was briefly uh, Douglas's co-editor in his paper, The North Star, and they came to have disagreement essentially on this point, and uh, and so they and so they parted ways. But they were kind of friendly rivals for uh, for decades. For decades thereafter, okay, so Douglas has to, so there, there is one point of saying that is to say that there, there is a non-racist alternative to colonization that Douglas could have embraced. He could have been like Delaney. And if you read just the first, you know, I don't know, few pages of the 4th of July speech, you could easily get the impression that that's, well, maybe the first half of the speech or so. You could easily get the impression that's the position he's taking when he, he starts out by addressing his audience. Okay, you know, uh, what's the meaning of the 4th of July? And he goes, and there's this blizzard of second-person pronouns. This is your holiday. These are your fathers. This is your occasion. You know, your country, not mine, right? It seems to be the same same thing. But then at the end, he says, no, uh, that, that uh, you know, I'm an American, and uh, the Constitution's a glorious liberty document, and there are... Grounds for grounds for hopefulness. So this is kind of what I had in mind when I was saying that Douglas's patriotism is a is a striking thing, is a kind of a surprising thing, and it's and it's an achievement. One one last thought about this. I mean, Lucas was calling attention to the the, the that it seems almost shocking that uh, that Douglas. Um, gives this Fourth of July oration professing what's clearly a deep and heartfelt American patriotism two years after the fugitive slave law, you know, the the legislature of the land has enacted the most pro-slavery law in the history of, uh, of, of American politics. And I would suggest that that's, yeah, that is striking in a way, but it's not accidental. It's logical in a way also. I mean, 
one of the things it means, one of the things that that taught Douglas was that, first of all, the slave power, quote unquote, is very powerful. Um, it, it controls the national government. And the reason for that is that slaveholders are absolutely determined um, to maintain their institution. And so it teaches Douglas that Garrisonian moral suasion, the idea of remaining outside politics uh, and, and corroding the support for slavery merely by, uh, by, uh, by challenging rhetoric, is simply not going to work. He says the slaveholders are deadly in earnest. Uh, he's convinced by John Brown, in other words, that, uh, that, that slavery is going to have to be abolished when it's abolished by force. Um, and so at the same time, Douglas becomes more militant. Uh, you'll find editorials in this period of Douglas advocating acts of disobedience to the enforcement of the fugitive slave law. <laughs> There's an editorial, Lucas knows this very well, um, you know, that has the arresting title, Is It Right and Wise to Kill a Kidnapper? And Douglas's yeah. answer to those questions are yes and yes. Um, and the kidnappers are those who would enforce the, the fugitive slave law, which was, again, he's not being merely um, rhetorical. That was a kind of legalized kidnapping was what that law provided for. So Douglas is militant in advocating the resistance of law. And at the same time, he is much more political and patriotic advocating abolition by the force of law yeah. than uh, than he had been before. And those two things are related in just the same way that Garrison's antinomianism was related to his, his, uh, his anti-slavery also. Um, we could say more about the about the Constitution, but I'll, I'll be quiet. I'll be quiet for the moment, anyway. Yeah, if I can just comment on that, I um, I think that is exceedingly well put, Pete. Um, and I would just summarize it by by saying essentially what you're saying is that uh, it was it's not it, while it might be astonishing in one light, it, as you say, it's, it's eminently logical for Douglas, given the thinking that he is doing, rethinking that he is doing about the Constitution around 1849-1850, this slave act gets passed. As you say, it reflects uh, public opinion, because that's what laws do. They reflect public opinion. And so, as you put it, so slave power, is it fair to say here that for Douglas, slave power has to be met with power. But that power, Douglas decides, is found in the Constitution. So power must be met with power, slave power met with legal political power that he believes can be found in the Constitution, mm -hmm. like the Republicans are saying at the time, like Lincoln, uh, saying that, yeah, all the federal government has power to do is to prevent the extension of slavery into the territories, which is a disputed point, of course, with Democrats. No, Douglas reads the Constitution to say Congress has it within their power under the Constitution, interpreted by this particular generation, to ban slavery wherever it exists on American soil. Mm -hmm. Not only the power, it has the duty. Chris, Chris, can I intervene with just a quick question? Uh, how, much, how, much, how much time do we have? Oh, we have about 15 minutes or so. Okay, okay, yeah, I, I wasn't, I, I had forgotten uh, just how long our session, our session goes. Um, uh, Sam, out among the, among the, the, the listeners here, 
ask the question. Up, okay, yeah, that, that's a, that to me, that's a very good question, which is partly to say that's a difficult question, but I want to I wanna say a couple of things about that. Um, Pete, can I, can, I'm not sure everybody can see the question, so. Oh, okay, yeah, I was going to say, I mean, the, 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 to, to encapsulate the question quickly, it, it is this. Was, was Douglas's change of mind on the Constitution essentially instrumental, uh, that is, you know, did Douglas decide if we're going to wage an effective battle against slavery, we just have to have the Constitution on our side, so I have to reinterpret it, or was he genuinely convinced that the Constitution is anti-slavery? Was he genuinely convinced the Garrisonians were wrong about that? Now, that's a very, very important question that, that, that's, you know, important to understand Douglas and Garrison and the pre-Civil War era, I think it's important to understand, you know, constitutionalism in general, too. This is a kind of a, the, the battle between uh, legal realism, you know, the Constitution is whatever the powerful say it is, versus, uh, versus originalism is, uh, is kind of implicit here also. Um, and I, I, I will suggest an answer that I'm about 75% confident in. Um, <laughs> You know, but, well, it's, it is a hard question because Douglas does say that it's advantageous for us to have the Constitution on our side, that it's idiotic for Garrison. He kind of says this in the Dred Scott speech in different and better language than I just used, but um, it's, it's really adverse to our interests here, you know, to allow the other side to have the Constitution. I mean, in other words, it's, it's adverse to our interests. To, to make the anti-slavery revolution contingent on a larger anti-constitution revolution too, you know, the American people tend to revere the constitution. Do we really want to be on the wrong side of it? So when you pay attention to stuff like that, if that's all you know, then you get the sense that Douglas's constitutionalism was... Um, you know, was was fashioned to serve a purpose. In my in my book, I referred to it this way: that the question is whether Douglas reads the Constitution more like a lawyer or more like a judge. You know, is he interpreting or is he advocating? Um, now, the case for the other side, I think, is ultimately more compelling. Um, Douglas says when he gives his own explanation of how this came about, he says, this started to come about when I became a newspaper editor mm -hmm. uh, in 1847. When I started editing the North Star, I wanted my paper to be a faithful, you know, um, organ or venue for, uh, uh, for the, the, the transmission of all variants of anti-slavery views. Uh, by that time, the political or constitutional abolitionists and the Garrisonians had split off, and he wanted to give a voice to both those parties. And so he started reading things that constitutional abolitionists published, and, uh, uh, and he came to the conclusion that they were right. Um, and he gives reasons for it. Some of them are in this Dred Scott speech. Some of them are in a speech. The most extended interpretation of the Constitution he gives is in a speech called The Constitution and Slavery, um, in 1860, which is given in, in, in Glasgow, Scotland. But the, the key thing to, to uh, I think the key fact here is that Douglas had read a book by a cranky Bostonian, a very peculiar character in American history named Lysander Spooner. 
which had been originally published in 1845, um, uh, called, shoot, what's the slavery, uh, shoot, Unconstitutionality of Slavery, that's the title of it, Unconstitutionality of Slavery, and uh, and that book is a mouthful, that book is over 300 pages long, it should be about 200 pages, it needed, it needed an editor, but Spooner made a whole bunch of arguments uh, you know, all pointing to the conclusion that the U.S. Constitution was, in fact, a firmly anti-slavery document. Douglass's position on the Constitution, as Lucas was saying, is the most radical way of being an anti-slavery constitutionalist possible. Lincoln was an anti-slavery constitutionalist, but in a more moderate, mainstream kind of way. Douglass's position was that if you read it correctly, the Constitution not only empowers the federal government to abolish slavery in the states, I mean to abolish it instantly and everywhere in the U.S., um, it not only empowers the federal government to do that, um, it requires the federal government to do that. It creates not only the right but the duty, and, and that's Spooner's title, that slavery is unconstitutional. Uh, it could be challenged in court and a judge would be ruling properly, uh, to, to strike it down, to refuse to enforce this kind of, uh, this kind of property claim. Um, you know, the reasons for that go into his, you know, he talks, Douglas talks a lot about what's the right way of interpreting the Constitution, the proper method of interpretation, what's the right way of reading the things that they did at the convention, an originalist way of, of, of interpreting, um, and those are the things that support his opinion, that it's, that it's actually, a, as he says in uh, the July 4th speech, a glorious liberty document. Yeah. By the way, Pete, if I can just say, it's worth, you just mentioned uh, this, and it's worth mentioning uh, explicitly, I think that um, this question really became uh, much more prominent or, or uh, important uh, in light of the fact that James Madison's uh, debates yes. had just been made public, I believe, in the early 1840s or right around this time. And both both Garrison and Douglas would have had access to these things. Yes, uh, and, and it did reveal. But the, but it's amazing how they both came to different conclusions about yeah. the intent of the framers from those debates. Garrison concludes clearly this is an anti-slavery. Uh, there are anti-slavery motives here, and in including these various slave clauses. And Douglas concludes the exact opposite. And I wonder if it's, right. And I wonder if. You mentioned uh, a couple of times the July, what to the slave is the 4th of July speech. Um, I wonder if, and that speech was 1851, I believe, right? 52, 52, 52 yeah. 52. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and Garris, I'm sorry, Douglas comes around at the end and, 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 uh, and, and again, rejecting the idea that, he, that you know, slaves have to leave, that, that this can be their country. That attitude seems to be based on a turn, not to say this is the first time Douglas does it, but he really brings the Declaration of Independence in front and center. And I wonder if Douglas's, Douglas begins to interpret the Constitution in light of the Declaration. That is, for Douglas, there's an inseparable connection between the two. Uh, and maybe his interpretation, because I, I, I think some of his, um, I'd like to hear your thoughts and Lucas's thoughts on this as well. Some of his more lawyer-like readings of the clauses in the Constitution and his conclusions that those are anti-slavery clauses, I think are a little bit, they're, they're stretched a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. but yeah. if you interpret the Constitution in light of the principles of the Declaration, you can, you can 
be more generous in in thinking and noticing that the the Constitution actually does kind of leave it open. It's not necessarily a pro-slavery document. It also includes interpretations that might make it possible for us to take steps against slavery. And that would therefore leads him, unlike Garrison, to draw a different conclusion about the intent of the framers. Um, uh, I'm sorry, unlike Garrison and unlike uh, uh, Tawney, right, Judge Tawney. Mm-hmm. It seems like Garrison essentially ends up agreeing with Judge Tawney's characterization of the intent of the framers, uh, whereas Douglas draws an entirely different conclusion, obviously. Um, so I'm not sure if there's a question in there. I'm just trying to get my thoughts around some of the things you're both raising. The connection of the Declaration to the Constitution seems really important to Douglas's understanding of how to interpret the intent, the original intent, behind those particular, uh, again, so-called slave clauses. I call them so-called slave clauses because, as right. Douglas points out, they never use the word slave or slavery, right? So, Yeah. Uh, I'll just say briefly that Douglas, uh, uh, as much, of course, as he is a, a fan of the Declaration, uh, I don't know that he leverages uh, the political philosophy explicitly out of the Declaration and into the Constitution as he might have. Uh, he mm-hmm. really chose to read the Constitution according to the text. And at least his professed claim is, as some originalists would say today, we have to stay within the four corners of the document. Mm-hmm. Douglas, I think, makes an earnest attempt at doing that, beginning with the preamble. In other words, beginning yeah. with what the text itself says it exists to accomplish. And so for him, he says, it's not so much uh, a living document in the way that progressives would say today, right? Well, you know, dead white guys might have meant it for X, we of our generation mean it for why? Uh, no, Douglas says because it has been misinterpreted and leveraged on behalf of an institution that is inimical, the opposite of why you create republics for so long, it is entirely legitimate for us to put it back on the right track. And that track is a republic is for people. And blacks are people just like whites are people. And if it is intended, uh, to you know, bestow the blessings of liberty to ourselves and to our posterity, uh, he says the slave power has to come up with an argument as to how slavery can be legitimated by such a constitution contrary to what its clear intent is as it itself spells out that intent in the preamble. That's great. Yeah, that reminds me, too, of the Douglas's analogy of um, uh, the people have misinterpreted the Bible. Right. Yeah. And, but you don't throw the Bible in the fire and say, "To hell with the Bible. It's bad. It's, it's all about a misapplication and a misuse of it for bad ends. And that, by the way, that metaphor always struck me as a, as a, a, a jab, not only at the slave power, but also at perhaps Garrison's own uh, rejection of the Constitution. But, um, but but you know, on, on uh, or Douglas's particular understanding of the slave clauses, it seems to me he gets some of them right in light of the evidence that we have from again Madison's debates. Mm-hmm. For example, his interpretation of the three fifths clause, I think, is 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 is, is pretty accurate. Um, are there other? Um, what do we think of his other interpretations of the slave clauses in particular? Do we have any thoughts on that? 
Well, maybe we don't have enough time. But that's a question that'll take us. That's a question that'll take us a while to work through. I'll throw out a couple of scattered thoughts on that, but I wanted to comment on your 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 question about the declaration too. Um, you know, just to I guess say something similar to what Lucas said, but in different words. I mean, because I think the spirit of your question is right, Chris. That that I think um, the declaration really does inform. Douglas is thinking about the Constitution, sure. but it does in an indirect way, and the indirect way is that it does this through the preamble. I, I think that the, the Douglas thinks the preamble is a kind of recapitulation of uh, of what's of what the Declaration implies about good government and just government, and the preamble is smack in the text, and so it's entirely legitimate to uh, you know for a textualist, which is what Douglas professed pretty much to be. That um, uh, you know to, to to draw that connection on on this point um, the without getting into too far into Douglas's um, uh, method of interpretation which about which he's been convinced by Spooner um, the the crucial principle is this that and you could get this from the preamble in a way also but he. He, he gets it, um, he cites the authority of the U.S. Supreme Court itself in an early and relatively obscure case, um, and, uh, according to which the, the crucial principle of constitutional interpretation is a presumption in favor of liberty. Uh, yeah. And Randy Barnett, you know, law professor, famous guy, more famous than Lucas and I are, uh, um, makes, makes a big deal of this. Presumption in favor of liberty means that you know, if you have doubtful or ambiguous provisions in the text, um, then the way to resolve the doubts is to try to understand how the, the document can be made, two points, how the document can be made coherent, not internally self-contradictory. You have to have a presumption in favor of coherence, and you also have to have a presumption in favor of liberty. Um, because you have to, I mean, the presumption in, in favor of liberty can come from the preamble, blessings of liberty for ourselves and our posterity, but um, it can also come from the nature of law itself. You know, that law is not law, you know, properly speaking, unless it, uh, unless it accords with, uh, with ideas of justice. And so the presumption in favor of liberty means, you know, simply put, that if it is possible to interpret a given constitutional text in support of liberty, and that would mean against slavery, then it's necessary. You know, if it's possible, it's necessary. And so he would say, I think, in response to the suggestion, that well, some of these readings seem kind of strained. Um, I think he would concede that, yeah, well, that's in a way true, but they are, but the straining, as it may seem, is is mandated really by this by this presumption of liberty idea. Another way to say that is to say that if the Constitution's drafters meant to protect slavery, um, say by the Fugitive Slave Clause or you know by the other pertinent clauses, well then they bungled um, because <laughs> they didn't use the word slavery and so they right. made it ambiguous and so they they created a license for people to interpret it in an anti-slavery way. Wow, that was a very clear, I mean, in two minutes, Pete, that was perfectly clear explanation of an extraordinarily difficult idea. I, I seldom achieve clarity, so I'm, uh, I'm, pleased, I'm pleased with that comment. Uh. I mean, again, but it raises another question, though, is why did Garrison not 
I don't know that we can answer this in two minutes, but actually we're out of time. But why did Garrison not start with that assumption that this that this is a document that presumes or uh, you know built on the presumption of liberty? Um, uh, again, maybe it's a little unfair, yeah. I, I well, let's to be fair to Garrison, maybe one can say well, no, I I can't quite say this. I, I was going to say you know one could maybe say he was convinced by Wendell Phillips, but he held his position long before Wendell Phillips wrote. Um, just for the interest of the, of the teachers, though, by the way, that uh, if you want the two sides of this contention in the in the you know 1840s through about 1860, read Spooner on the one side, and you get the elaborate version of the argument Douglas makes, and read Wendell Phillips on the other side, uh, who writes a small book, The Constitution, a, Plo a pro-slavery document, pro-slavery compact, I think, or something like that, and uh, and Phillips regarded as conclusive the appearance of Madison's notes in 1840. He thought Madison's notes, when you, when you dug into those, made it clear that when they were mentioning persons, they were talking about slaves, you know, and that when they were, you know, and, and so forth. Um, so I'll, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll not go on about that. That's great. Yeah, very, very interesting. And unfortunately, I mean, I think we need another hour to, to <laughs> keep going on this. I'd love to ask both of you what how Garrison and Douglas disagreed with regard to Lincoln's actions as president, but uh, we'll have mm -hmm. to have that conversation another time. I'm That's sure. uh, That would be a good one. Yeah, it would. Maybe we'll do that again sometime. But I, I, I don't want to keep you both over. I know you're both very busy, but I do greatly appreciate your time and your thoughts. I've learned a great deal, this is uh, as always. So thank you, thank you both very much. And I wish we could get to a few more questions as well. But... On that subject, can I say, can I say one last thing? Um, I, I don't know if this is consistent with with Ashwin's needs, so I may be uh, presumptuous here. But uh, Julia, uh, hello, first of all, and we didn't get to your question, but stick around, and uh, if you want to talk about it, if if uh, sure. if it's possible for anybody to stick around, I'd be I'd, I'd be interested to talk about that question too, as well as just to say hello. So uh, uh, so that for what that's worth. Yeah, unfortunately, I have uh, another appointment on my own Saturday. Ah, <laughs> I'm somewhere else. But this was awesome. Um, even though I, I I teach this subject, I always I always learn when I when I listen to Pete. So this was really good. Likewise, uh, likewise, yeah, always fun, Lucas. About the chapter of that new book, the political philosophy of the Civil War, you, where you got a chapter in there that is just first rate on Frederick Douglass. Oh well, you are uh, you're you're kind to say that, um, but. Uh, on that, uh, on that point, can I mention a couple of uh, recommend a couple of good books from both of these gentlemen for our uh, people joining us? If you're interested, I uh, can't recommend enough Lucas's book, Lincoln's Sacred Effort: Defining Religion's Role in American Self-Government. <coughs> and uh, Lincoln, I'm sorry, uh, Lucas also edited a collection of, of essays uh, called Lincoln and Liberty: Wisdom for the Ages. Um, and Pete Myers, uh, your book on Fred Douglas, Race and the Rebirth of American Liberalism. Best book on Frederick Douglass ever written. <laughs> I would agree. I agree entirely, right? And uh, and also a book that had an influence on me, uh, your book on Locke uh, called Our Only Star and Compass. So recommend the writings of these guys um, for further, further thought. Um, thanks to both of you again. Thanks to our participants uh, for some great questions. Uh, just uh, I, I forgot to mention this before. If you're joining us, you'll get an email with a link in it by which you can request a certificate of participation. We'll also post the audio and video from today's webinar uh, soon, and you'll get a link to that as well. Our next Saturday webinar will be on Abraham Lincoln and Stephen Douglas, 
and that will be December 1st with Dan Monroe of Millican University and Jason Stevens of Ashland University. So thanks again. Uh, look forward to seeing you at our next, uh, next Saturday webinar in a few weeks. Thank you for listening to another TAH.org podcast. You can find archives of all our previous programs as well as information about future programs at TAH.org slash webinars or on iTunes by searching for teachingamericanhistory.org.